I am Ryan from The Moon is a Dead World, and this is uh, the start of a new podcast that I'm actually going to be doing in it, it, par- partly uh, with The Moon is a Dead World, but also on the side, um, so you'll be able to access it not only from themoonisdeadworld.net, but also from um, iTunes and hopefully some other places that we can get the podcast set up for. Um, I'm here with Martin, Chris Martin, who uh, I normally refer to just as Martin. Hello. Um, he is not a blogger. He doesn't have any sort of online presence besides his social media. Um, <laughs> so other than that, he just kind of frequents forums. He's also an, a geek like me, although not in the same sense. Uh, he's not really into the whole horror genre as much as I am. Um, more so, he's into cinema in general. Wouldn't you say? Yeah, cinema, sci-fi, anime, a bunch of other different things. So um, that's kind of where he comes in. Um, And I thought I'd bring him along on the podcast because I think it's kind of important to have someone that's not really into the horror genre as much, but who can also uh, give some commentary on the movies that we've been watching. And I like hanging out with him, so that's (laughs) also a plus. Um, But right now, we decided to do a podcast and uh, call it Blood and Black Rum because we're obviously playing off of the Mario Bava hit, Blood and Black Lace, um, which kind of is a throwout to all those Jello fans. <laughs> no idea. Yeah, uh, Martin <laughs> has no idea. Um, and to be honest, I perused a bunch of, because I wanted to pull from Jello, I perused a bunch of Jello movies beforehand to see how we could incorporate not only uh, my interest in horror and what this podcast was going to be about, but also my interest in drinking and our our, yeah. our joined interest in drink, drinking. Black rum is delicious. So um, today, actually, we're kind of cheating. We don't have um, black rum with us today. Um, that's more of just a, to make sure that we can play off of that title. But um, <laughs> what we have today is uh, some shandies, Line and Kugel Summer Shandies, thrown out there. Um, also a Labatt Shandy, which... Is also very good, I would say. Not as bad as I thought it would be. And um, we've also got Amagang, which is repping our local um, area um, in Cooperstown, New York. We've got an IPA from them, which they're they're just starting to do, and it's very good, I would say. It's it's got a lot of hops to it, so if you're a fan of that, then definitely check them out. Um, But, so... Now that we've got the title out of the way, that's uh, the, kind of the first thing we wanted to... I, I didn't really want to explain it, because if you're a horror fan, obviously you're going to get the reference. Um, or but, if, you're, if you're a simpleton like me, you'll just be like, well, that sounds cool. Yeah, well, sounds cool. It, it, it does work. And originally, we're going to have something with rye whiskey in it, but uh, that didn't really work out that well, to be honest with you. There's nothing that we could really pair rye whiskey with where it would that would really flow. I mean, what was the one thing I, I offered up? It was like nine... Uh, oh, it was like the the, the killer reserved nine rye whiskeys or something yeah. like that. It was just not not working out the way that it should. Uh, Martin was quick to point out that's really fucking long title. So <laughs> obviously it's not something that we want it's to go. It's too with. long to say. Nine rye to drink itself would be too. Taxing. Nine rye would be intense. I think I think you that. might have to call a doctor. I after think that. I think you would. I think we would have to get somebody here <laughs> to check your liver. Yeah. So anyway. On our first episode, we wanted to. Well, I let me just say that as at the Moon is Dead World, I'm fucking rolling in movies right now to review. I mean, I've got a shit ton that are just like hanging out in my room in my office. So I definitely wanted to to choose something that was some. Wow, Bart, are you okay over there? But I wanted to choose something that um, I could cover from what I had to review. And so Martin is a big fan of spaghetti westerns, just like I am. So today we're not really covering anything horror related. We're we're mostly we're sticking with the Italian theme, though. We're we're doing yeah. spaghetti western. It, yeah, it is. Um, so we're covering Man Pride and Vengeance, which was released by Blue Underground on Blu-ray um, not too long ago. Uh, we're a little late on this. I think they released it like a month ago, um, and they're always putting out quality releases. So. Uh, Today we're we're taking on Man Pride and Vengeance, also known as um, With Django Comes Death, um, because it has Franco Nero in it, um, and he plays the main character of Jose in this one. Um, and if you know anything about Django, you can just forget about anything that you know about it in Man Pride and Vengeance because it really has nothing to do with Django at no, all. No, he doesn't show no, up at all. There's it's, no, it's, there's, it's basically there for namesake alone. 
try to draw in viewers. Like if you if you are a hardcore spaghetti western fan and you know like Django films, then you'll be like, oh, you know, might check this out. Yeah. And, you know, otherwise, and with you know the release of Django Unchained, you know, obviously playing off that too. Playing Although, off that too, like you know when Quentin Tarantino did that not just a couple of years ago, kind of you know. Not revised spaghetti westerns, but you know, brought a light back to you know, the a genre which the western is for the most part kind of a dead genre in cinema. You see some films every now and then pop up, you know, as a, you know, western, but you, they're nowhere near as prevalent as they used to be no, back in the forties, fifties, and sixties. So definitely not, um, which is unfortunate. I mean, the closest that we have now, and you would think that with television revival coming around. There would be more sort of Western types on TV, at mm-hmm. least with how much horror has blown up on television. Yeah. We're really not getting that much of it even on TV. We have Hell on Wheels, That's which is really about it. Oh, the only thing I can really think of. And I mean, obviously beforehand, we had... Um, on HBO. Though. Yeah, on HBO we had Deadwood. Yeah. But other than that, and I guess you could say Justified in a way... Timothy Oliphant, you know, going from Deadwood to Justified, it's still kind of got that spaghetti western. Well, not, I mean, I wouldn't even say spaghetti western, but just western in general western, feel yeah. to it. Um, but other than that, it's really not that represented it, as know, a genre as at all. A genre yeah, at all. It's, it's not anymore. Become very niche. It's, you know, you know, and, and the, ju- the, the, the biggest western thing to come out in the past, you know, 10 years, half decade was Red Dead Redemption. Yeah. For, you know, which. Probably sparked a lot of interest in you know probably what old western spaghetti western so. films. I would say that other than that, yeah, other than that, big for us too. Yeah, yeah, we both we both logged a lot of hours in that game. But other than other than that, you know, I mean, it's probably the biggest thing to happen. That and Django Unchained are probably the two biggest things to kind of happen in the western genre. But other than that, most films that come out in that genre are very very kind of under the radar films. You don't. You know, you don't really see anything. Not, not too much. Um, I, yeah, I can't even really think of any recently. But um, I think what was that? What is the Jeff Bridges one that he did? True um, Grit. True Grit. Yeah, yeah the remake of True remake Grit. Of True yeah. Grit. Um, and that, I mean, that was that was pretty good. I saw that back a while ago, probably a few years ago. But I mean, that was pretty good. But other than that, I don't. I, I think. Well, I mean, not only was, I mean because was that a good film. I think it more had to do with the star power behind it. You oh, know, yeah, Matt Jeff. Damon, Jeff Bridges. If you know, if it was just like a, you know, if you take guys like that out, it's you know, still going to be a good movie. Yeah, but I think you know it it would fly definitely much under the radar. Plus. It was, you know, wavering the banner of True Grit, of one of John Wayne's most famous films, so... Yeah, well, I think that helped. That, was, uh, uh, that definitely helped, but I think that it definitely had um, what, you know, it definitely had what people were looking for in a Western, too, I, I, at least what I what I thought of it when I saw it. Uh, it's been a while since I've seen it, obviously, but I, I thought it was pretty good. And obviously, you can't go wrong with Jeff Bridges in it, mm-hmm. especially in a hardened role like he was in. Mm-hmm. I agree. So... So let's probably any, start digging we should, into... Yeah, we should probably... We're already 10 minutes in, so I think we... I mean, actually, that really segues pretty well into Man, Pride, and Vengeance, because we're 10 minutes into this podcast, and we've barely spoken about Man, Pride, and Vengeance. Well, you can be 40 minutes into Man, Pride, and Vengeance, and you've barely gotten to the plot at all. Yeah. So I think that really sums up what Man, Pride, and Vengeance is all about. Um, it's very much... Um, a, a very slow spaghetti western, even considering how slow spaghetti westerns generally are. Tra- yeah, traditionally a lot of spaghetti westerns are, you know, very slow, very plodding. A lot of them do have a lot, of, like you know, long run times. Like you just have to look at, you know, the most famous of spaghetti westerns and Sergio Leone's films. You know, they're they're, long. they're very long. You know, long. they're plodding. But compared, to, as we'll see when we talk about Man Pride and Vengeance, they build up to. I mean, a big climax. Yeah, they do. I mean, you could say that you're plotting like a horse, and they're but they're getting there. I mean, you definitely know when you start a Sergio Leone film that it is you know it's going to start slow. There's going to be obviously a lot of eye contact, a lot of different shots of zoom in shots, eyes, and and various things like that. And I think part of that too, going from a Sergio Leone film, is that you know that that's going to be there. I mean. As a as a, a current you know contemporary viewer 
of cinema, you kind of know what you're getting into in a Sergio Leone film. Yeah. Whereas you talk about Luigi Bizzoni, not very, yeah. I mean, not well known, not well yeah. known comparatively to like Sergio Leone, yeah. and it's not something that obviously you would get a lot of. Um, and I, I just think that you right now we kind of know what what you're getting into when you're watching a Sergio Leone film. He's very well known, uh, especially he in... Defi- defines basically the sp- spaghetti western yeah. genre with his uh, Man With No Name trilogy and Once Upon a Time in the West. Um, his more or less, fam- you know, less famous film uh, with Duck You Sucker or A Fistful of Dynamite. Uh, you know like how with those movies it's going to be slow, but again, like because it's it's kind of not fair to compare um, uh, Man, Pride, and Vengeance to those films. It's not. Because yeah. those are probably considered, to the most part, not to just be masterpieces to the Western, spaghetti Western genre, but also as just cinema, like, you know, landmark movies in cinema history. Um, so this Man, Pride, and Vengeance comes nowhere near it, but it does have a lot of traits that you would see in a Leone film just not as well done not only that but like that you would also see in other spaghetti westerns that were very prevalent at the time of the late 60s well and i mean with luigi bizzoni too he to be honest with when man pride and vengeance came out in 1967 he hadn't done a lot mm-hmm. um basically he had done um the possessed uh before that which was uh like you know right before that now like i think it was a couple years before it and um and then it was Man, Pride, and Vengeance, and he's really only known for that um, and The Fifth Chord, which um, w- came out like a few years later in uh, 1971, which is kind of like a, a crime film. But other than that, um, Luigi Bizzoni, you don't really think back and say, wow, yeah, that was really like a, a person who kind of furthered the spaghetti western genre. Yeah. It really wasn't. But and, and I mean, talking about that, and we recently um, watched Day of Anger as well. Which is, by many Spaghetti Western fans and critics, considered a very good Spaghetti Western. Yeah. When we watched it, we really weren't that impressed. Other than Lee Van Cleef being Lee Van Cleef, yeah. that, that movie's, you know, very run-of-the-mill. It's it's kind of like when you're going from... I And perhaps we've kind of watched them in the, in the wrong order. Mm-hmm. Perhaps we're coming from seeing the best... To going towards the more obscure films, you know, because that's yeah. kind of the thing now is to release the more obscure films on Blu-ray, mm-hmm. it, and you know, having these, you know, th- I mean, thankfully, Blue Underground is taking things like this and, and bringing them to light, so people, yeah, can so exper- people can yeah. experience them. I'm not saying that that's a that's a bad thing to bring up those older films that people might not have experienced because they've only really been in obscurity, maybe online. Somebody put up a terrible rip of like a. You know, a copy that somebody had, but um, at the same time, you're coming from a scenario where you've seen some of the best, and now you're going towards more not not the worst, obviously, but some that just aren't well known, and they were well they weren't well known for a reason. I mm-hmm. mean, they just they're, for whatever reason they didn't get into the public spotlight, um, either because of promotion, uh, actors, you know, actors, yeah, yeah. something like I that. Mean, like, the reason why, like, you know, you could say, like, a Sergio Leone's films are well-known is because you had Clint Eastwood for those first three movies, you know, a TV star at the time. And he also had, you know, in Once Upon a Time in the West, Charles Bronson and Henry Fonda. You know, Henry Fonda, by, you know, the time that movie came out, is an acting legend. Right. These films that, you know, Franco Nero... An act, well an act, well, a well-known well, act, you know, yeah. for people who like, you know, films in the, you know, overall Italian genre. But if you're, you know, Joe Schmo America, you know, you're probably, you know. And I mean. You're not going to, who are you going to relate to more? Right. Franco Nero or Clint Eastwood? Yeah. The guy that's, you know. Exactly. In this country has been, you know, promoted for 50 plus years as being like America's great badass. I mean, and I, it's not like Man, Pride, and Vengeance is hurting for name stars. Yeah. Either. I mean, Klaus Kinski's in it too. Uh, I mean, he's well known for other westerns and, and a lot of other different uh, genre films, especially horror. Um, but at the same time, it just really doesn't have anything. Man, Pride of Vengeance. I'm, I mean, doesn't really have anything that's kind of drawing people to it. And I don't think that it is very well known. I don't. And um, part of that is because 
as a spaghetti western, it is very slow, as we talked about before. It is a, it's a, it's a very slow spaghetti western, as Day of Anger is, um, and and it's also kind of, it's a very different spaghetti western in that it's not about, you know, a gunslinger taking someone under his wing. It's not about. Uh, like a, yeah, it's, it's, not, not, it's just, generally. I mean, it has vengeance in the title, obviously, but it's generally it's, not about vengeance per se. Yeah, it, this I would say this um, man pride and vengeance is barely. It skirts kind of the spaghetti western tradition. It takes kind of the theme of it and applies it to what the movie's trying to do. The film is basically a retelling of the novella Carmen. That you know is also made famous as being an opera. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not set in, in a Harry Arnold ma- episode. Yeah, in the hair, the great made hair, famous by that. The great Harry Arnold episode. That's how I know it. But it's it doesn't take place in America. It takes place in nope. Spain, like in Carmen. Carmen, the I would say it's not really focused on like action and vengeance. It's more. As other reviewers have said themselves, it's more psychological, but at the same time, when it tries to go in that direction, it's not very strong in it. And I think that has to do with partially the the overall story, the directing, and the acting, and it kind of hamper that direction. And so it makes for kind of just a more slower-paced, lackluster spaghetti western compared to, you know, where others, you know, would be slow pace but at least you know they're driving home to a point they're trying to get somewhere at least with it and i mean to be honest as i was going through the film starting obviously and i hadn't seen it before this this was the first time i've seen man pardon vengeance so uh both of us for both of us um going through it in the first parts of the film where um jose meets carmen it's a very slow sort of romantic build um you know, he's part of the army. She's sort of a gypsy that's a dancer yeah. as well. Um, kind of known con around artist. town as, as, a, she's as con a con artist. Yeah. Um, I would say for the... I'll give the movie props for taking an idea like Carmen and applying it to the spaghetti western setting. Yeah, definitely. It's kind of... You don't really see that that often. You know, taking, taking like a source material and adapting it. I mean, you've seen it before in other spaghetti westerns, yeah. like Ryan and I were talking when we were watching the movie. You see it in, like, A Fistful of Dollars. That's a remake, you know, Sergio Leone's remaking uh, Yojimbo. And when you see The Magnificent Seven, it's not a spaghetti western, but it's a very famous western that's remaking Akira Kurosawa's uh, The Seven Samurai, who also did Yojimbo. And you also see, you know, you see kind of, like, you know, plays on that, like, taking source material from whether it be books or you know other movies and turning it into a western theme and succeeding this movie i think does it a little bit but at the same time it's too slow paced for its own good and building to what it wants to build to i would say that it takes carmen up to a certain extent Mm -hmm. whereas you know when there when we have seen other ones like that other films like that, but spaghetti westerns that take like Yojimbo, um, that is kind of already structured in that style. I mean, mm. Carmen is definitely not anywhere near like what, what you would say a spaghetti that. western would be. Yeah. It's they're very very different, and I think part of the problem with Man Pride and Vengeance is that it does use some of Carmen, and it wants to use that as a frame of reference for this film for the viewer. But at the same time, as it continues. You know, once you get into the second act, it really starts to develop into its own style of spaghetti western. Mm-hmm. It's definitely becoming more of a spaghetti western than its influence from Carmen was. Yeah. And I think that it's the problem that Bizzoni has is taking both of those styles and trying to mesh them together in a way that really works and makes sense. And I think that, you know, the first act of Man, Pride, and Vengeance really has that Carmen thing down. To but the it takes point where it, it takes it a very long time. It I takes mean, too damn long. It it's, takes, it's it's very fucking long. Where where it should have taken twenty minutes to get the point of you have your uh, female lead who is Carmen, 
who is, you know, your gypsy, who's, you know... A, very, very uh, bewitching. Bewitching. She's seductive, you know, but she's also known as a con artist. You know, it should have taken 20 minutes to get from the point of... You introduce Carmen. She's a con artist. She's seductive. She's seducting our lead in Jose, who's an army sergeant. And then, you know, it should only take 20 minutes to get from, you know, they meet, he gets seduced... And then he gets in trouble, and then he needs to flee. Instead, it takes 40 minutes, even though it shouldn't, because he falls in love with her instantaneously. Right. There's, there's no, like, you know, logical growth. No, no progression, even. Progression no, for his character. You think, you know, with 40 minutes to spare, there could be some progression mm-hmm. there. You would think that, you know... Jose would eventually become enamored with her as he continues to meet her over and over again. But instead, it's more of a, he meets her once, he does her a favor, gets in trouble, but he's enamored immediately. Yeah. And from there, I think, again, that's part of the problem is that there's no real progression of rising events. I even said that to you at one point because yeah. you questioned, you know, like, how far into this are we already? And I looked and it was like 40 minutes. And I was like, I think now, finally, we're getting to this rising action. I mean, all that was, was exposition, first first and foremost. Yeah. And, and that's typical to see in a spaghetti western. Because, again, they are known for very slow pacing. But at the same time, this movie is only an hour and 30, hour, Four, and, 40, yeah, hour 40 and 40 minutes. minutes. Hour and 40 minutes. So they wasted a lot of time building up this relationship between the two. That didn't really grow or build to anything. It was just he's enamored. She's a con artist. She's trying to screw him at every chance she can get because she just wants to get what she wants. And all it builds to in that 40 minutes time, because like I said, the relationship doesn't grow at all. And it just builds to Jose ending up killing his lieutenant when he walks in on the lieutenant, you know, just having done, having sex with Carmen. You know, it's basically a big... You know, yeah. waste of time building up to that point. Like, again, you could have gotten to that point a lot quicker. And I think what makes it even worse is the way F- Franco Nero is acting in the movie is pretty good. Like it's, pretty good. it's I, solid, but when I it mean, comes to the romance scenes, yeah. like him expressing his love or him expressing his anger, it's, very awkward. it's awkward and very over the top. Instead of saying, "I like you know, I'll kill you," he's like, "I'll murder you," you know. Trying to be more dramatic about it. Or, like, when he says he loves her, like, you know, and he wants to, like, you know, make love to her. He's very over-the-top about it. You know, he's very, very garish. And, like, he's very just, you know. And I feel like we should interject and, and say that we did watch the English version of this. The English dub, yep. The English dub. So we did not actually watch the Italian version, which is also on Blue Underground's Blu-ray. We could have watched it, but we, we decided to go with the English dub. Um, which, to be to be fair, is really not. It's not that, that good. It's not that. It's no, not it's, very it's, good it's at all. typical. I'm not saying that's Blue Underground's fault. I'm saying that's no. that's the that's what it it's was, it's it's was typical. As. It's typical of like you know a movie a foreign movie that got dubbed in the '60s. It's over the top acting, for, especially for the very oh, yes. bit part characters. Yeah. Like you know you know like a random stranger who has like two lines. Their lines aren't you know delivered normally. It's I mean, you know very yeah, over the top. It's, very, it's like. It's like they pulled someone in and said, "Hey, we got an extra. We need you to you <laughs> just know, say this. You give, know. give us this line." And I think that's that's very characteristic of the time period. I think yeah, that as we've moved forward with voice acting and you know people in committing the dubbing, yeah. just just, just the role, to yeah. voice acting, that has gotten a lot better. But in this time period, it's an this, afterthought. It's, it's very not. It's it's not up to par. Definitely. Um, so. I mean, I think that that could could have been part of the problem when we talk about, you know, Franco Nero perhaps being a little awkward in his roles. I mean, obviously he does have a, a have a dub voice for it. But I don't think that's totally the, you know, the main portion of the problem. I think that more so it is the way that Bazzoni has created this ro- romance that I think I think Almost intentionally, too, is that it is very much the viewer supposed to sense this irony that, you know, Franco Nero's character, Jose, is really going after this gypsy woman, this bewitching sort of seductive woman that it has really no interest in him, is just using him. I mean, as an audience member, we know that pretty much from the start, mm. from what we've seen. And I think part of what makes this and Carmen um, 
like a, a, a sort of a play or a movie that kind of transcends time is that people can understand that there's an unrequited love interest here mm-hmm. and that Carmen is really kind of playing uh, Jose on. Um, I think that's... I. I'm, I'm feeling like Bazzoni intentionally put that in there. I mean, we're supposed to sense the irony. But at the same time, it becomes so um, overdramatic to the point where it's, it's, it's very hard to believe that Jose would continue to go on with the, with the plan from Carmen. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we should talk about, you know, the second act is really where it becomes a spaghetti western style. More style, movie. yeah. Um, where it kind of switches roles actually very abruptly. I mean, there's a there's a scene where um, Jose kind of loses consciousness after his fight with the lieutenant over Carmen, and from there it really switches abruptly to, hey, this is a spaghetti western. It's out in the hills of Spain. Um, it's you know now there's horses. Now we're away from towns more, and looks more like a desert. It looks yeah. more like the desert canyons. It, very, and... it switches very abruptly to now we have like sort of a heist moment where. Um, we're 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 getting we're planning a heist, mm-hmm. and that's more so of a spaghetti western than you would expect from something like Carmen. Um, it's definitely planned out like a spaghetti western instead of using Carmen as a as a mm-hmm. focal point. I I will say the the movie starts off too with the end scene. It starts off with. You see Jose running away from any some sort of trouble, and you see how you know large and scale the movie kind of seems because it's out in the open, it's a canyon, it's kind of a, it's reminiscent of to me. But even though the movies came out afterwards, um, and Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid starring uh, Chris Christopherson and James Coburn, where you see in the beginning how. You see how uh, Garrett dies, you know, later in his life, and then it shows everything else afterwards. Mm-hmm. You know, you that at least makes sense right. because you're building up to Pat Garrett's a rather famous figure, mm-hmm. you know, because he's a, hist- a historical figure. It's not, you know, he's not a made up character. And you see how, like, okay, how he died, and then like how he lived trying to chase Billy the Kid. And this movie, you see how. Jose's final moments are, you know, how he's running away from trouble, yeah. and then it goes to back to when he's a sergeant in the army in Seville, then how he gets falls in love, and then how he's all of a sudden, bang, he's out in the middle of the desert in Spain, now with Carmen's bandits, and he's just, you know, has to accept the fact that he's a bandit now, yeah. even though he's somebody... Who also, which we forgot to mention, has always has been moral. Orders. Yeah, he's followed orders and been rather moral in his like his i his ideals are rather you know strict on how his moral code is. Yeah. Um. And I mean, I, I do like that about about Man Pride and Vengeance that they've they've kind of made him into a figure where Carmen brings up that can you follow orders all the time? You'll be following orders until they tell you to hang yourself. Mm-hmm. Um. Which is true of. You know, Jose, he is a very, like, follow orders type of guy. Um, so they bring up his faults as well as his, you know, yeah. his, his moralistic attitude. Um, but at the same time, he really morphs really quickly into a bandit. Act, yeah. Into the yeah. bandit. Yeah, right, right, yeah, rather quickly because when you, we find him in the desert, it's been a week since he killed the lieutenant. And he's weak and he's trying to recover from his injuries from that fight. He rather quickly, with talking to Carmen's bandits, is... You know, pretty, drawn into this, pretty quick to you know follow through. It only takes them to say, "Well, you killed, you killed somebody. The police are looking after you. You got no other choice." Instead of you know trying to rationalize it out, he's kind of just like, "Okay, yeah." And the idea know. basically is to steal money from a rich guy who's yeah. bringing um, basically gold into a, a city, and and that's their their whole idea is to take this gold. And Carmen is kind of going along with the fact that she's Jose's basically girlfriend, and in general, it's it's unspoken, but it's it's very much that she's leading him on about mm-hmm. that, um, so that he can steal the gold and they can kind of make their getaway to the new world mm-hmm. um, with the with the money. Which is just very briefly mentioned the whole yeah very point. the 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 gold plot is mentioned like you know because that's the whole it's point very, of, of very the heist. Of the the heist is brought up 
not in a lot of detail, but you get a sense of it. But this whole idea, which will later come in part into the movie, of going to the New World, meaning America, very briefly brought up, not really explored, and it's yeah. just kind of an out-of-the-blue type of thing. For yeah, the, it's, like, it's... you know, for the character's motivations to want to do that. I um, That second act, too, um, with the heist scene, is actually probably one of the most... Exciting. Intense and yeah, exciting yeah. moments of the film, and it's actually um, it's a it's a pretty good moment. I wouldn't say it's a great moment in spaghetti western history. I wouldn't I you know I wouldn't say the cinematography is excellent excellent. And um, you know we we have um, Vittorio Storaro um, who you know did Apocalypse Now cinematography uh, as a cinematographer on this film, Academy Award winner. But I wouldn't say that. He uses the spaghetti western formula to his advantage all the time in this. He's very much it's it's actually it's very quick editing. It's yes, very, very quick. Very quick editing, especially in the chase scene. It's kind almost of, to the point where it's difficult to, to follow what's to going. follow what's going on. I think it's all that that kind of editing too is also kind of a style of the sixties. It is the, yeah. the really like quick editing, moving like you know zoom in, zoom out, quick editing. That he, and the quick cutoffs of music. It's yeah. Just like, Quick, like very. I mean, like there. I mean, like I look back. Like I can. There's like certain like edits, in like viewing that I can look back on that from movies I've seen from like the '60s. One of which that will always stick in my mind doesn't have anything to do with spaghetti westerns. James Bond film Thunderball is at the very end scene when you see the boat. You know, Bond's having to fight with the. Uh, villain of the movie Largo on the boat and it's very like the boat for no reason is like sped up three times faster the editing's like just quick jarring you don't you can't really follow what's going on you got a you know green screen in the background it's just you know looking back now it's very cheap looking it's very chintzy and it makes it very hard to kind of follow and it's kind of the same with the editing in this particular film Man Pride and Vengeance is the editing and the cinematography doesn't fully grasp at times what's going on they're too interested in kind of zooming in zooming yeah, out focus f- focusing on certain things like when i was talking about the when they were showing jose in the beginning that you know the ending of him running away from trouble they were constantly focusing on like editing like jose's running the quick cut to the vill- uh you know the people chasing the quick cut there's a son the quick cut back to jose the quick cut to the son yeah. the quick cut you know it makes for a jarring experience that makes it hard to follow I can understand stylistically that they're trying to show, like, you know... Yes. You know, kind of, it's that it's an intense situation, but at the same time, don't let the editing do that. Let the camera work and the acting yes. do that for you. It's, um, I mean, they definitely, they use the zoom formula that you often see in Spaghetti Westerns, but it's so zoomed in that the scope of what's actually happening is kind of lost on it, because the, the camera tends to in like the the gunfight scenes which actually in man pride and vengeance there are not a lot of gunfight scenes not at all actually one or two one or two that's it but in those types of scenes the camera tends to act like the bullet like zooming in towards the victim which i mean it's an interesting idea on how to shoot it Mm -hmm. but at the same time it really loses because there's not a lot of blood in spaghetti westerns Mm -hmm. it doesn't spurred out like you know you would normally see in I mean, like today's contemporary I mean, film. I say at, the, at the time it's very you know it's it, cra- would, it would have been violent for it's the, it's you know yeah. violent for the time kind of like with uh as a horror fan like you know the hammer horse like right. you know having blood and kind of like you know more nudity at the time it's more you know graphic but later in the film you see somebody get shot in the head and there's like no repercussions right. or from it that you would see like in a modern film where somebody gets shot in the head and you would see the full-on effect of some you know that kind of wound so it's 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 got you know that mix of a little bit of blood from the attacks that are going on, but at the same time, it's you know not being fully resembled. It's you know very nowhere near as dramatic as it should. be. And I think and that impactful. adds to the to the kind of the editing confusion because when the camera is using that zoom in shot as sort of the bullet, where you mm. you kind of see you know the victim stagger and then he falls over. It's, it's almost confusing because it's jumping around so much that it's like, okay, so he must have gotten shot, but where did he get shot from and, and what happened? Mm-hmm. I think, and I mean, it definitely adds like a fast pacing to it because for the most part, Man, Pride and Vengeance is very slow on the editing. I would say besides mm-hmm. the besides action, the, scenes, the action yeah. scenes, which there's only a couple of those as well, it's very slow on the editing. It's very, very deliberately plotted. Um, 
and so when we do finally get to that, it, it does kind of create like a jarring experience for it. But I would say that that, that chase sequence is probably one of the most exciting that you're going to get in Man, Pride, and Vengeance. And I think that it, it did work well um, to kind of alleviate the sort of, I wouldn't say boredom, but the the slowness of mm. the, the first part of the film, segmenting the last part of the film where it's kind of slows coming to again. its climax but it's, it's still slows, But it still slows down again. After, it does, yes. After that, it still slows down. Grand in the third act, there's more. There is more going on. There is more... A little bit more p- faster pacing to it, but at the same time, it's not as action. There's not as much action in it. And as I said earlier, it's very, it very barely kind of holds the spaghetti western theme. It's basically using it as a setting and a kind of style, but the story itself does not lend itself to spaghetti being a spaghetti western because it's so kind of mild in its overall tone. It's not, you know. Clint Eastwood walking around in a fistful of dollars saying, better make it four coffins, you know. It's... There's... It's not... It's not... It's not violent. The closest that we get is um, actually um, the one character who's part of uh, Carmen's gang who is sort of like a Lee Van Cleef stand-in. Don Carlo. Yeah. I would say is mostly the Lee Van Cleef stand-in who's like the grizzled sort of guy. Old veteran, um, yeah, who's better, you know, who knows. Sort of the alcoholic kind of guy. Yeah. He's kind of got his, <laughs> you know, his like tremors in there as well. But I would say that he is like the closest, and we actually really don't get to see him in, into any action really at all. I mean, basically the film follows Carmen it follows Jose, and, and very shortly it follows uh, Carmen's husband, who's just played yeah, by Klaus Kinski. Yeah. yeah. Um, but other other than that, like the big gunfight in the movie is during that heist scene, and you know, that's and, a, and again, a problem that kind of comes with that gunfight is the whole plan going into the heist of that carriage is that. Jose is leading the plan. He's the one that comes up with a plan with it. He wants no violence in it to make it seem, you know, yeah. discreet. And they get away with it. But then Klaus Kinsey shows up and just starts shooting people. There's no explanation given. Just he's that just a criminal. Just say, oh, he's a mad criminal. Yeah. You know, and he just wants, you know, to kill people. And then it goes to hell from there. But other than that. There's not really any violence, and the violence that happens in it, there's no real reason for it. It's just kind of, yeah. well, the plot kind of, you know... Yeah, it needs it. It's expected. And, I mean, there's two uh, sort of knife fights in it, too. Yeah. I mean, we have... They, they kind of bookend that main idea of, of the heist. They have, you know, Jose fighting his lieutenant... Which is also Carmen. Which is also really short, too. It's not like a... It's, it's not, pretty short, yeah. It's not like a long, you know... Draw, no, it's drawn, not drawn out, out fight. Sequence. It's it's a pretty short fight. Ends relatively without quick. without any music at all. Actually, yeah. they leave that out. And then the second knife fight is with Klaus Kinski, basically over Carmen again. Mm-hmm. It's it's forcing you know Jose to make a choice over whether he you know and obviously the knife fight isn't just about the gold. For Klaus Kinsey's character, it kind of is. Mm-hmm. But for he, Jose, yeah. it's more about Carmen. Mm-hmm. It's who has Carmen's hand, yeah. basically. So, again, we get a knife fight in that. It's it, it. You could say it's more personal. But in the scenes, I would say that the blocking is not as good as what you probably would see from a gunfight. Just because... <laughs> well, not only that, because they shot it at night, too. Difficult. It, it made it very. Di- it made it was darker, and the way it was shot, it made it very difficult to see. Uh, so unless you're sitting in like a dark lit room, yeah. no light around you, I- it's very hard to see and make out what's going on. You can just kind of see the very faint blue sky in the background. So other than that, you can't really tell what's going on. And again, that was obviously part of the film itself that wasn't Blue Underground. No, it's no it's Blu-ray. Not. It had nothing to do with no. the, which because they they did a great qual- job yeah. with the picture quality. Yeah, no, the overall yeah. picture quality is very fantastic. You know, and I wouldn't say that Man Pride and Vengeance is very colorful, but there are you know, it's not colorful in the same way that you would you would think of some other Italian spaghetti westerns. Mm-hmm. Day of Anger was very colorful yeah, with the reds. Bright, yeah. And 
but Man Pride and Vengeance doesn't really take advantage of that as much. But the colors Dra- that are and- present are very nicely, mm-hmm. you know. It, it's a rather, it's a rather drab looking film. It is. It's- the only thing that we really get is the red dress from Carmen at the mm-hmm. beginning of the film. And there was another scene that I really liked with, uh, like, kind of the fog rolling in as Carmen met Jose at in, the, in the field, trying to trying to get her, you know, smuggle smuggle things into the town. But other than that, that kind of has like a purplish blue tint to it but mm. other than that it's not really using that to its advantage and I think that that's part of the problem with the knife fight with Klaus Kinski's character as well is that you know it does only have the blackness and the, the, the night sky of the kind of blue behind it mm-hmm. it's very very dark and, and it's hard really difficult to see yeah um, I think one of the things we were talking about too when we were talking about uh, when we were watching the movie was uh Kind of the difference between this film and other spaghetti westerns and how they build up to moments. Like, you know, very famously, like, as Ryan and I have over the years, we've watched, you know, several spaghetti westerns and we've watched, you know, kind of jokingly, you know, at times, you know, like how they're like building up scenes, you know, in this long, drawn out manner. That specifically like Sergio Leone is meant for, but also the genre itself. How it's like long, it's drawn out, and even though it's like seven minutes to get to the point, when you get there, it's great, it's awesome, and yeah. it makes sense. And so when we were watching the movie, we were talking about how some of the scenes in this movie are long, they're drawn out, but at the same time, point they're trying to get to is nowhere near the point that other films it's, try to. It's depth, it's yeah, deep is it's you know more shallow and it's no, nowhere near as fulfilling as a viewer I so, think that, so like as I say like what's one of the examples like when we were watching like another film compared to this one well I, I well I mean I think we were talking about I mean again I hate to bring it up but Sergio Leone's films um, you know we have sort of a lead up where there's you know there might be a stare down and it might be a few minutes long but at the same time, you know that it's going somewhere. There's something tense behind it. There's either sort of a character-driven need for this this showdown um, that stems further back with with vengeance or you know some double crossing uh, that makes it more tense than you know what you might expect from something like Man Pride and Vengeance. Um, Klaus Kinski's character. Is um, I hate to keep referring to him that, but I, I even I don't even remember his name because he's really not featured that much in it. Um, but Klaus Kinski's character is um, very shortly. He's he's not very you know he's not very characterized at all in this film. He kind of crops up um, about like an hour in, I would think. Um, I I would say about an hour yeah. in. And basically, it's like a very quick reveal that oh yeah, uh, Carmen has a husband, mm-hmm. you know. And there there is a good shot of basically Jose going, oh shit, what the fuck? Yeah, she has a husband. But other than that, his character, his name is Garcia, by the way, because <laughs> I forgot it. I had to look <laughs> it up. Um, his character really doesn't have anything else going for it. There's no tension behind it. There's no. He's just, um, a cr- he's, he's just, just a another guy. He's a criminal. He got out of jail, and he's Carmen's husband. That's basically all we know about him. He's also kind of a dick. So that just makes it, yeah, which only, like as, uh, as Ryan was saying, that you know he's a dick. He's a criminal, and that to Jose because he, he's married to Carmen. That's like his only motivation. That's it. Other otherwise, there really wouldn't be any uh, antagonization between the two because they've accepted each other into the fold. So if you if and, you, if you didn't have Don Cairo tell Jose, like, oh, by the way, that's you know that's Carmen's husband that just got out. He would have been, you know, gladly doing, you know. And if you didn't have Garcia start the murdering, because mm-hmm. that's what he does, yeah, there would be no problems. I mean, that's it. That's yeah. really all there is to it. And I mean, you can say that man, Pride and Vengeance has vengeance in it. Apparently, that is the vengeance. But really, there's no reasoning for killing off Garcia besides those two events. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas if you think about like the good, the bad, and the ugly, there's definitely that backstory behind mm-hmm. those characters where when you get to that tense, long yeah. finale, there is something, a payoff behind it. There's something there where you're like, wow, I really want to see this showdown. I mean, even though there's a, a really long standoff, there's a showdown there. Three that hours I of build. To see. Yeah, three hours of buildup of yeah. these characters going at it. And, I, and one, uh, as I was saying earlier too, 
take it on the opposite end, you have Leonis again. I hate hate comes to use Leonis as an example. They're very different. They're but, very different. But you know, Leone and his movie Once Upon a Time in the West, starring Charles Bronson and Henry Fonda. The first seven to eight minutes, there's no dialogue in the movie. Mm-hmm. It's just a couple of gunmen waiting at a train station for Charles Bronson to show up, and you have the way the film is shot. It's you know steady. You know, and the camera work, it's steady, but the way they shoot the characters, they shoot the train, they shoot the train station, it's, it makes you engrossed. And there's no music, there's just silence, you you know, you hear the whistling of the windmill, there's, you know, nothing, you know, again, and like, it's subtle in how it does its things, it's, you know, building up to it. So when you get to Charles Bronson, eight minutes in, with no dialogue, just these people standing around, and all these different camera shots... You know, you get that tenseness of the moment, and it, you know, and then when you finally get to the gunfight, and it pays, it pays off. In this movie, you have like all those trying to build up, as Ryan was saying earlier, tense moments with these camera shots and like these quick reveals, and it just doesn't do it. It just does not do it as well. Where if you know, it even as a slower paced film, when it gets to its parts that should be emphasized. They're very quick to gloss over it. Well, I would say that Man, Pride, and Vengeance is really not that subtle. It's it's really it really wears its theme on its sleeve, and it's basically a romance where one person is unrequited in it, mm-hmm. and we know it as an audience, but Jose does not. Yeah. And when we get to that third act, when we get to the last part where they've been successful in getting the gold, they have it. Um, they're going to make their getaway to the new world. Mm-hmm. Uh, Carmen doesn't want to go because she's already on to this new con. She's already on to a new, yeah, a new guy who a has bo- a lot of money because he's a bull, bullfighter. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, instead of going on the boat uh, with Giancarlo, um, he, Jose instead tr- goes back for Carmen because yeah. he thinks that... Tell, tells him basically to fuck off. Yeah, I mean, he thinks that <laughs> Carmen is still interested that she will go with him. Yeah. And as an audience member, we know that that's not true. We know that she's kind of moved on to a new con um, just because of what we've seen of her before. And, and it should be pretty obvious to Jose because we've seen the same thing that Jose has For an basically. hour and a half, yeah. We've seen it for an hour and a half. We, we've, we, you know, and it makes it difficult... In a way to understand Jose's own feelings because it's sh- it's very shallow. It and, is. Yeah. And, it's and, not. And it's not like Carmen is like doing uh, a whole bunch of things to like throw um, Jose off. It's not yeah. like she's you know she's very manipulative or mm-hmm. anything like that. We don't get any of that in the film at all. We just basically see her telling him exactly what's going on, mm-hmm. and and that's that's he, follows he along, just follows yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, I mean, there's. And I mean that that goes on along with his character. Yeah, with the following words. I mean, at the same time, you have a scene like scene like throughout the entire film. There's a bunch of scenes where she'll tell him he's useless. She thinks he's a pig, and he's you know ridiculous, yeah. and he needs to give up. And then two seconds later, you know, after she belittles him and berates him. She's like, oh, but I love you. Yeah. You know, and, you know, and saying it half-heartedly. I mean, as the audience, we know it's half-heartedly, but, it's at, you know, at the same time, it's like, when any, uh, anybody in, like, you know, with common sense sees, you know, somebody, like a friend or somebody in a relationship that's an abusive relationship yeah. that they can't get out of, you know, you have that lens of, like, they're treating you like shit, just fucking leave, you know? Yeah. And, I mean, you can kind of say that the same, but at the same time, you know, and you can kind of understand Jose, but like, no, like, yeah, she does say that, but... The, the movie doesn't give us enough. But she, the, you're not given enough to go on it. With yeah. the way, the, from the, you know, this movie could have been 20 minutes long with him just being like, yeah, no, <laughs> the hell with this. Yeah. Uh, get your ass back, you know, out of the town. Well, again, I, I think that has to do with the beginning portion of the film, where it just, it documents only a couple of instances where it could have encompassed a lot of different ones. Mm-hmm. It could have added... A lot more where, you know, instead of Jose just being like this guy who just kind of seems to become obsessed with Carmen really quickly, it could have been a lot of little moments that build up to 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 it instead of just a couple that seem out of kind of character for this person who seems to be pretty well, you know, pretty well well established in this town. He's he's part of the army. He seems to be... You know, pr- pretty well established with uh, a lot of, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of power. Um, so it just kind of comes out of nowhere. And I think we're coming, we're coming down to like the the time where we kind of got to wrap things up because we only got a few more minutes left that uh, before we're gonna we're gonna cut it loose. So I wanted to bring up um, 
as we finish things out, something that really is kind of because become pretty important to spaghetti westerns, which is the music. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know, that's a, a pretty important part of most spaghetti westerns and in general now many older films um have great you know, scores have great yeah. scores um and this one was done by carlo rusticelli um who i would say is less known let you know mm-hmm. not as well known um and we were talking about this before uh where some spaghetti westerns generally they have a score that is very over you know Overwhelming, very melodramatic and bombastic. Doesn't fit the scene that they're being applied to. I mean, that is the case with Man, Pride, and Vengeance. It does have some of those sort of stings of music where, Mm -hmm. you know, there's a a shot of the sunrise or the sunset and it's, you know, a sting of just hitting you with it. Operatic, you know, music. And And as the music itself it's it's okay i wouldn't say there's not there's nothing wrong with the music yeah. i think more at times it's kind of the placement within the film that they use the music to try to boost a scene instead like the yeah it's just you because know because there are intentional moments where they leave it out like yeah. the fight scene with the the to, lieutenant to make it, to make it seem more intense yeah. and, you know like a fight for the death, which you know obviously was. And I think it's imp- it's important to note in these films too that a lot of the time with the scores, they weren't done in a studio where someone was sitting there watching the film, going, "Okay, what would be the what would be the score for this moment?" To, like to fit it, that. It moment, was yeah. basically written, and then you plugged it in. Yeah. You know where you wanted it to go, and um, I think that Rusticelli did a pretty good job. I, I would say a pretty good job. He's. I mean, it's it's no like NEO. Well, um, even still, Ennio Morricone. Yeah. I mean, like he's famous for the Leone films. But at the same time, like when we were watching uh, Two Mules for Sister yeah, Sarah, yeah. which that one's is another spaghetti western, stars Clint Eastwood and Morricone did the music. Very, you know, very. Different. You you very... would you would never think he did it. You you would, and when you find out that he did do, you probably go, oh, "You should probably get a paycheck for this." That's all he cared about. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah, I mean, it really depends too. I think, and I think it depends on. A lot of things. I I don't know. I haven't watched you know special features on Man, Pride, and Vengeance at all. I don't know exactly what went into the making of the film. Where you know what was asked of the the music composer, at all. Yeah. Um, so that also becomes a consideration when you think about that. Where but, I mean, still, I think sometimes when like you see too often them just like somebody riding on a horse very slowly in the background, the camera's zoomed out, and you have the sun going back, and all of a sudden you hear like dun 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 dun. dun. It's like that's not appropriate for what right? the, the yeah. scene that's going on. Yeah, like, no, I, and I think that's part of the the thing about plugging in music where you know you just no, no, I I I understand that, but yeah. the, like you know, I mean. Not asking every film to be like uh, it's Star Wars, where George Lucas tells John Williams when he's composing the scenes, "All right, watch the film when we're doing yeah. it. Plug the music, you know, compose yeah. and plug the music to fit this, you know, scene." Yeah. I'm not saying that, but if you hear like, oh, "Okay, this is the music we have that he's done," right? Oh, he's got this big bombastic piece. Let's plug it yeah. in this scene where this guy's just slowly, yeah. yeah, slowly walking or riding a horse, and it doesn't make any sense. Then. Then yeah, it's it, that's problematic. That's really bad choosing, and it doesn't lend itself to the scene. Like you wanna, uh, I mean, I think people don't realize how often uh, if you you know how much music plays an integral part to film and how it builds certain scenes up and how like it kind of take you out of certain scenes. Yeah, and you know, like like I said, like earlier watching this film just watching some scenes where it's just them in the desert slowly walking and like riding a horse and you all of a sudden just had this big music piece playing it takes you out of it because it's like there's what's being built up here nothing right you as you can just tell just from watching the scene you know nothing's being built up here it's just oh they just threw this kind of in here because they didn't want you know a 30 second scene of a guy riding a horse slowly through the desert right yeah because yeah it would just would have been long yeah would have been but yeah, I, I understand what you're saying with that. Um, but I think we're we're pretty much coming to the end of the podcast here for Man, Pride, and Vengeance. Um, it's funny that, you know, as a, as a film that both of us kind of said was kind of just 
you know, as a spaghetti western, it's kind of just, eh, you know, it's, watch it's, it once. It's okay, yeah. Um, it's funny that you know we've got gotten about an hour of discussion out of it. Um, that's was actually pretty interesting, not just for this film alone, but for most spaghetti westerns. Mm. Um, you know, you can you can definitely give those kinds of. Um, which we'll do, we'll do more which too. Which we will do. Yeah, I mean, we'll we'll definitely do more spaghetti westerns. We'll definitely do more, uh, you know, more action oriented things too. Because sometimes it's hard to uh, put those into context in terms of like the Moon is Dead world, which is mostly horror, horror in general. So when I review things like coffee or black exploitation or things like that that are more crime thrillers or mm. you know, it it doesn't actually technically fit into the realm. Um, they're mostly more of just like the genre pieces that they don't really, you know, have a home in terms of like, oh, this is just a, a drama. Or a I mean, comedy. I mean, well, as I was gonna say, to be to be fair, spaghetti westerns or like black exploitation are rather small. Yeah, they're all ge- very ra- rather small small genre compared to the overarching theme of you know horror. You yeah, know? yeah, they so. are. So it's 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 good to incorporate them, not only because. They do kind of fit in, especially uh, with Spaghetti Westerns with their Italian connotations. Definitely a lot of Spaghetti Western directors worked in giallo films. Mm -hmm. Um, Dario Gento. Yes. um, But at the same time, they they definitely share their, you know, elaborate titles. I would, you know. (laughs) But, um, so we'll definitely be working more of those in. We'll be working more in the action pieces, um, you know trying to take on some of the other things. I think we probably want to try to get to Terminator Genesis um, sometime when that soon. that comes out, yeah. Yeah, maybe this week or something like that. We'll try to get to that and maybe do a podcast on that. Um, maybe and we probably may- will in the future be trying to get like a couple of films in, maybe into one podcast because it's, it is it is more, you know, I don't know. It's, it's just tougher to do one whole podcast on one film because it just really... It, I mean, it limits... The listener base the, yeah. too. Um, if you haven't seen the film, you don't really know what the fuck we're talking about. Yeah. So, but I mean, it's still fun to listen. Which, to. Uh, which, unless you're talking about like you know a well-known movie that's yeah, out, yeah, like yeah. yeah, like Terminator Genesis, we could talk about and, and definitely. I would, I would love, like I said before, like before we did this, I would love to talk about the new Mad Max. Story. Oh, I know. I mean, I'm sure we could get like two hours out of that, yeah. just 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 shooting the shit. But um, you know. We we definitely have to keep in mind the the format and you know listeners being able to devote the time to it. We, it's no you know it's not like a harsh noise wall piece that I would do four hours. <laughs> well, long. We, gotta <laughs> listen to their feedback and see what they say. Yeah, like so hey we'll, hey like hey talk more about this or like hey shut the out. fuck up. You know <laughs> you know what I think we'll also try to do is with more with movies that we've seen before that we definitely know better. Mm-hmm. We'll try to do like sort of like a riff tracks on it or like a commentary running commentary mm-hmm. track while we watch the film um, which would be interesting it'll be like I, I'll have to look more into how I would want to do that with either headphones or something like that mm-hmm. so that we could definitely get the most out of it and per- perhaps be getting some better equipment because I know the mic itself we have a we have a um, an external mic it's not like it's not the best so it's not picking up the best quality but we'll, we'll definitely be trying to uh, to get some better stuff for that too and definitely taking feedback from you guys listeners um uh in hoping that you guys will subscribe either you know on your itunes account um or you know wherever wherever else we can can get this podcast up um you can always check it out on the moon is dead world.net which i will definitely have links for it up um and uh, we'll definitely be coming back to you regularly with uh, different reviews or different commentaries on things uh, that are happening in cinema today. Not even cinema, but it could be television, just anime, things, anything yeah. in general. Really, we'll be trying to cover based on you know what interests us, what's what seems to be interesting people around the around the uh, the internet and communities, um, anything like that. So revealing the light on lesser known things. Like That's right. And Pride and Legends. That's right. Um, and, uh, with that, I would like to thank Blue Underground for the Blu-ray of Man, Pride, and Vengeance because, um, these companies really do go out of their way to provide review copies, good review copies for, for, uh, people like me who kind of just get to film and, and give it a watch and, and, uh, you know, spend, devote quite a bit of time on it actually, um, just to, just to give a a fair review and talk about it. yeah. Yeah. And talk about it. Um, so thanks to Blue Underground for that. They always release really good stuff, so you should definitely check them out. Um, 
uh, we'll, I mean, you know, I have a couple other Blue Underground releases that I'll be covering either in review format or in the podcast too. So um, uh, definitely. Which ones are those? Um, I think. Oh, that's the uh, the the um, Mad Max and uh, uh, Escape from New York uh, clones that are Escape from uh, the Bronx, <laughs> uh, 1990, the Bronx and the Bronx Warriors. Um, all of those uh, I've got from Blue Underground because they really they do release these uh, these uh, crazy things. So um, we'll definitely be getting to those. And uh, other than that, uh, you know, keep listening, and we'll be back with you soon. Um, hopefully, you subscribe to our iTunes account and wherever else we get this up. So uh, from uh, themoonisdeadworld.net, um, I want to thank you. And Martin, you want to thank you guys. I hope you'll be back, Martin. I will be. All right.